We will be reading this morning from Joel chapter 2. Our sermon text is verses 28 to 32. I want to rewind and go back to verse 18 and read uh, all the way on through verse 32. And then we'll also be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 13 to 33 and 38 to 39. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, going on through verse 32. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner from you and drive him into the parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea, The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the trees bear its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame." And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those who call, who the Lord calls. And now over to Acts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now over to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and, the signs, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And now on to verses 38 to 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our great God and Father, you have indeed given and promised your spirit, and we ask now that that same spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds uh, to set Christ on display before us, that we might hold fast to him and be sanctified by him and nourished by him, especially as we go out into a world of sin. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see in uh, Joel, verses eight, Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, this superabundance promised within creation, whereby God would remove the curses of the covenant. He would refill creation and restore his presence. But our assumption should be, as observers of the story of the Old Testament, We've been on this hamster wheel before, haven't we? If we put ourselves in the mind even of the people that would be receiving this prophecy from Joel, 
we, we, we'd hear this great proclamation, especially in verse 27, where God promises that his people would never again be put to shame. And, and we'd say to ourselves, how? I mean, we've been here before, over and over and over again. We've had this cycle of failure, even from Moses. The people would complain. You think of the generation at Meribah. And what would happen? God would come in judgment against them because they had failed to honor him. They had failed to worship him, failed to see him and his saving work for them and honor him and live for him. On through the judges. This period of time where uh, the, the, even though many of the events are contemporaneous, it presents it to us as though things are getting worse and worse and worse and, and just delving into utter chaos. There's no king in the land. And everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They've completely abandoned God. The Philistines have invaded. Everybody's invaded. They're not in a good spot. But then they beg for a king. And they do get a king. And what, what do we see there? We think, oh, maybe, maybe their plight, maybe their problem might be fixed. And fast forward to Hezekiah. And the only reason God relented there was because of his prayer, but it was for a short time. He said, only for a short time will I relent. I'm still going to come in judgment. We've been on this hamster wheel so long, and what Joel prophesies and hails this morning is that God would send His Spirit to solve this worship crisis, to end this endless cycle, to come in judgment against the wicked, and to shelter His people when He does come in judgment. This text is guaranteeing and giving an explanation for how the promises of particularly verse 27, will come about. Joel promises the Spirit, promises his judgment, and promises Christ. And those will be our three points this morning. The promise of the Spirit, the promise of judgment, and the promise of Christ. So first, the promise of the Spirit. While God's uh, promise of the Spirit is that he is indeed going to break this cycle of futility and failure so that they will never again turn from him, but instead in its place give to him perpetual obedience and perpetual right worship. And we rightly wonder, our, our, our question when we hear this should be, how is the Spirit the solution to this problem? How is the Spirit the thing that solves the problem that Joel has been dealing with? Well, for this we have to go to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, the people are, have just come out of Egypt. They're complaining. Uh, the, the verse 1 pictures them complaining about the food. And what does God do? He comes against them in judgment. In verse 2 and 3. Verse 4, the people complain again. This time they say, God, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? God comes in judgment against them again. And this precipitates really Moses' complaint at this point. God, like, did you give me a bunch of babies? Like, am I leading these people for nothing? I can't do this all by myself. I'm tired of this. Let me die if you don't help me. And in response to this, God, God actually proclaims to Moses that he's going to take a portion of the spirit that he'd given to Moses and pour it out on 70 of the elders. This is exactly what he does. And by the end of the story, 68 of them have prophesied and are no longer prophesying and only two are left. And several people come to Moses with a complaint, cast them out of the camp, and Moses retorts to this, are you crazy? 
Would that all of God's people have His Spirit. Would that all of them were prophets that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And the point that Moses is getting at here is that the, the perpetual problem that Moses is sick and tired of dealing with all the way back in Numbers chapter, chapter 11 is solved by the Spirit so that the, they would have a spirit of knowledge and vision and understanding to see God and His redemptive works that they wouldn't be looking back and saying, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Why are you giving us this bread? They were questioning Him. They weren't thankful to Him. They weren't living lives of worship. The Spirit would bring to them perpetual and grateful worship. And Joel's prophecy picks up on this promise and and gives this prophecy of the Spirit as the solution to the problem that he was experiencing in Israel at his day after this repetitive cycle of failure and judgment and restoration. And the reason that that the solution is because the Spirit will rest on, as Joel prophesies in verses 28 and 29, all flesh. And he goes on to specify what each of these groups would mean. All of them indeed pointing to the all-encompassing nature of this gift. He says that this spirit would come to rest on your sons and your daughters. So no longer is it about an age classification or a, a, a distinction between gender. Men and women would possess this gift. The old men and the young men. It didn't matter whether you were young or old. In those days, only the leaders, only the old men were elected as leaders to speak with insight and, to, and understanding of God's work and word. Now young men will have this understanding too. He goes on. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. There's no classification for your rank or your place in society that dictates your ability to know God, to have understanding or to have knowledge of Him. The language itself here points to the extravagance of, its, of this gift. It has no limits, even on the male and the female servants. The lowest in society. In many ways, this is an allusion to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the, in the recipients of this gift. It would be those who were slaves within Jewish society, within the, the kingdom of Israel, who didn't have full possession of citizenship. Foreigners who had come in and dwelt among Israel. This is the promise to them as well. This language of outpouring too indicates and points to the expansiveness and the, the, the full measure of this gift, just how great it is. Outpouring conveys that this is the climax of the the monsoon-like gifts that God had already begun pouring out on them in verses 18 to 27 when he had prophesied to them that he would bring rain upon the land. And he's using this same language, now instead using a word that refers to the torrential downpours that would come upon the land in the ancient Near East. It would be like taking a pitcher and completely dumping it out into a glass of water that cannot hold all of its contents. That's the measure of which God will pour out His Spirit. Without measure. And what's the purpose of this giving of the Spirit? To restore creation. 
we saw in verse 18 to 27, but now also to restore his people. God's people, as a result of this giving of the Spirit, would be faithful and not turn aside. They would never come to God asking him again, why did you bring us up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Why have you delivered us? Why have you brought us into the wilderness? Why are you taking us to the promised land? Why are we now in the promised land? Or God's people as they were in these days would never again fail to give him proper worship thinking or taking for granted all of the gifts that he'd given them, his presence among them, and their right standing with him. And so Joel's prophecy is a fulfillment of Moses' plea. God's people would know him. They would know him perpetually. This crisis of failure and judgment and restoration would end. It would just be restoration. And so this leads us to look at at this prophecy, to look at the sinfulness of the people, to look at their problem uh, square in the face, to not underestimate sin, to recognize it for what it is. It's this heinous, horrible thing that requires the Spirit of God Himself to come and to dwell amongst us in order to rectify our inability to know God, our inability to see Him and His redemptive works in bringing us out of slavery, and to worship Him properly in light of it. But it also leads us to see His grace. God cares so much for His people that He's promised, made promises to through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that even though they have this perpetual cycle of failure, that's almost pathetic. For hundreds of years, what will he do? He himself will come in the power of his Holy Spirit to hover over them and recreate them and reform them and to sustain them so that they will never again be put to shame and so that his presence would never again depart from them. But Joel also gives a promise of judgment. Will you look at verse 30 to 32 with me? And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord God here in this section announces the promise of judgment as good news because it is against their enemies, the wicked, and points to their perpetual safety with God. We see in this that the problem for Israel was not just a worship problem at this point. It's their enemies triumph and rule over them, mocking and jeering at them, their enemies subjugating them, coming in, invading their land, trampling their crops, taking their women, abusing them. But much much more than simply being the suffering that they experience at the hand of foreign powers, perpetually throughout their history, this shame or this shame and this promise that, that Joel is giving correlates to the promise of verse 27. They would never again be put to shame. Now, in context here, shame is really and truly associated with their right standing before God. If their enemies are standing over them, they've been cut off. They're suffering covenant sanction. 
This is why we see over and over and over again in the Psalms these kinds of requests. Lord, let me not be put to shame. Let my enemies not stand over me. It's because this kind of, this kind of defeat at the hands of their enemy is a picture of their relationship with the Lord. Why is enemy victory a problem? Because it symbolized that they were cut off from God. So this promise is really and truly, if, if, if God is going to ride out in judgment and overturn the cosmic order and bring them to safety in Zion, it is a promise that they will never again be put to shame. They will stand with him in victory and have everlasting life. So it's not just about being cut off. It's also about the experience as human people of, what it, of defeat and of losing. I'll tell you what, losing stinks. Being subjugated stinks. Being a slave to foreign powers is not fun. This is perhaps kind of difficult for us to imagine, but I, I, I thought an appro- of an, I think an appropriate analogy. When I was in, in college and I played soccer at Providence, um, it was the first year that the team was formed. It was very early on. And we had our, our first game with 11 players on the field, and we were all so excited to go out, so all, all so excited to represent our college to be a part of this new thing, this new team, to go out and compete. Now, it's typical in soccer that you might lose 3-1, three 3-2. to, one, three to two. If it's a bad defeat, it's 5-0. We lost 17-0. to zero. It didn't feel good. You can laugh at that. <laughs> I'll give you another analogy. My family is very, very competitive about Settlers of Catan. Uh, I was vacationing with them in Carlsbad this week, and we, of course, played. And there's a rivalry between my brother Case and I, and he, of course, took the win. And I heard for the next two days that he was the reigning champion. I was upset. It didn't feel good to lose. Now, put this in the context of a real-life situation where your enemies, your, your, your pagan enemies are ruling over you, are subjugating you, are standing over your grave, rubbing in your face their victory that they slaughtered your fathers, and constantly reminding you of your powerlessness and your service to them. It's not very fun. The announcement here is more than just the spirit, but the promise of security in the land so that this kind of defeat, this kind of embarrassment, this kind of devastation to their ego and their sacred identity would never again occur. Okay, so it would be one thing if they just had his spirit and they were still dwelling in Babylon or the Philistines still reigned over them. But that's not what Joel is prophesying. He's going above and beyond here. Worship and identity now for them as God's people with his spirit is so good that even 
on the great and awesome day of the Lord when God rides out in judgment against the wicked and against these, against these foreign nations, not only will they not be in the wake of that army that God rides out with to be destroyed, they won't be in the wake of the army that's riding out against God. They will instead be safe behind God in Zion. They will have life everlasting there. And their security within its walls, within her fortress, is secure. They will be safe within the city of God. And how do we know that to be the case? You might look at verse 30 to 31 to 32 and say, or 31 to 32 and say, I don't really see that in the text. Verse 31 to 32 presents, verse 30 to 32 presents to us what I want to call a kaleidoscope of themes that draw on the imagery of the Old Testament for both judgment and theophany. Kids, if you don't know what theophany means, it means God's appearing. So you have a a kaleidoscope of images that draw on the themes of the Old Testament that point to the appearing of God in both kindness to his people and simultaneously judgment. The Spirit's coming is associated with both deliverance and renewal and recreation in the face of judgment, particularly in these signs and wonders that overturn the natural world order. You think on, for instance, Noah in Genesis chapter 8, at the end of the flood, they're still floating on top of the, on the, on top of the water, and what happens? God sends a mighty wind to come over the face of the earth and to dry up the water. God is present in His Spirit after this complete destructive event, bringing about through the Spirit new creation, new life over all of the face of the earth. You think on the Exodus. Here in Joel, we have allusion to the plagues. You have the bloody Nile, just as you have the blood that Joel refers to here. You have fiery hail, just as the fire that Joel refers to here. You have people enshrouded in darkness, just as Joel refers to here. You have a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. You even have allusion to God's arrival on Sinai in fire and in smoke. You also have allusion to the great and awesome day of the Lord and the army that comes with it. The same language used here at the end of chapter 2 is reminiscent of the language used at the beginning of chapter 2 where where Joel depicts this great and awesome army of the Lord that rides out, that's not afraid of anything. They go into every wall and every crevice. They, They scale the walls. Nothing can stop their advance. There Joel spoke of them as fire and darkening of the skies, the blood of those who stand before the Lord, the crackling of, of fire and smoke. So what's the image here? This time, this army is God's army. Not riding out against God's people in judgment, but riding out against the wicked in judgment. The pagan nations, this foreign army from the north that will rise up and come against God and try to take His throne and, and smother the flame of His people. This promise is that God would protect them. God will appear in theophanic glory, in fire and in smoke and in darkening of clouds, 
to ride out against these armies to protect his own people from judgment. So this arrival, this overturning of these cosmic, of the, of the normal cosmic order in blood and fire is a picture of his arriving, his self-disclosure to his own people in the person and the work of his spirit, but also his arriving in judgment. Both are contemporaneous. Both happen at the same time. Now there's a tension to that. In the same breath that God announces the coming of his spirit, he, he announces his arrival in judgment as good news. Both destruction and divine self-revelation. That's interesting to us. Here what he's depicting is just like what he depicted at ex, in the Exodus. Recreation and new Exodus is what's on display. Liberating from bondage by his judgment-like appearing. But it's also more than what we saw with the Exodus. Now, possession and retention of the land of God's people in Zion and in Jerusalem is not dependent upon their obedience. It can't be in question and it can't be threatened by enemies for their disobedience because of the Spirit's presence with them in order that they would never question who He is, in order that they would never question why He delivered them from bondage and such that they will be safe in Zion. You know, if you look even at Egypt, for example, the judgment against the enemy that God presents here is much greater than that's that which we depict in Egypt. And Egypt was decimated. They were completely decimated by the, by the way that God rose up against them. But there, as God was coming out against the enemy, He was present delivering His people reconstituting them, giving them his law, and appearing to them in covenant mercy. And now, this deliverance as he recreates, this judgment as he recreates, looks both ways. For it is not just the judgment looking back, but the judgment looking forward on that great and awesome final day of the Lord. Now that's the clear image, that great and awesome day, that final day. What's the image looking back for the church? Well, if Egypt is a picture of sin and our bondage to it, then this is the liberation and judicial decree against sin. And what does Scripture say? He condemns sin in the flesh. I couldn't help but, as I was thinking on this point, think of Job and the, his accusers and their accusation that they brought against him. They came to him saying, well, Job, surely, surely you've done something wrong. That's what's, that's what's brought to you the judgment and heavy hand of the Lord, and that's why you're suffering. Mm. People of God, you've been brought to safety in Zion in this new exodus carried out by the Spirit of the Lord who is reconstituting you as a new people, leading you to that city. So your own failures, you don't receive judgment as Israel did in Joel for your failures. Your own failure is not the reason for whatever suffering or whatever may appear like judgment to you in your life. You have a salvation in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as Hebrews 12 says. 
So God himself instead promises his arrival so that these promises are yours. The promises that Joel makes, these promises God promises to you. That he will send one when he arrives to make these yours. So it's not like the accusation of Job's accusers. His friends. Your safety, your identity is secure. There's a final verdict out. God promises his arrival so that these promises are yours. And surely he has arrived. And this brings us to our third point. The promise isn't out there still as it was for Joel's day. It's not out there floating as if it hasn't happened. It's not just future. This spirit and this deliverance are yours. That's what Acts chapter 2 proclaims. You aren't on the hamster wheel that you can't get off, but rather you can instead offer grateful and faithful obedience all of your life because God's spirit dwells in your hearts and has come down and has been sent from heaven. What's the spirit's presence all about here in Acts? And here in Joel, seeing the redemptive work of God in Christ, living a life of grateful obedience and offering a life of worship, not looking back and saying, God, why did you, de- why did, why did you deliver us from Egypt? Why did you deliver us from bondage? So the deliverance spoken of in verse 30 to 32 is certifiably yours. It's not just the Spirit that's yours. It's not just the promise of the Spirit that's been fulfilled. It's both the promise of the Spirit and God's coming in judgment. Peter proclaims both to be fulfilled. And so really this becomes a text about the perseverance of the saints. It's not just a day in the distant future when God comes and overturns. Safety in Zion is already a present possession. God came in judgment. That's what Peter is proclaiming in chapter 2. That a dividing line was drawn. You have then, Hebrews 12, come to Zion, the city of the living God. That's secure. No question, no doubt about it. You are a new exodus people created by the judgment-like appearing of the Lord by His Spirit in fire and in rushing wind. That's what happened. Joel's prophecy was fulfilled. And he is now leading you to a promised land not dependent on your obedience. He's given you this spirit so that you can can see, so that you can believe, so that you can never turn from the salvation that you have in Christ. And how, how do you know it's yours? How do you know this salvation is yours? Because Joel's promise not only prophesies and calls for, but actually is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. This is what Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33 proclaims. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Spirit rushed upon them just as Joel prophesied in tongues of fire and rushing wind. Abraham Kuyper says here, 
something that needs to be, have an exclamation point on it, as it were. The outpouring of the Spirit does not fall like rain on each individual Christian as it did the Old Testament prophets. But the Spirit rained down on Jesus Christ without measure, and as if he were a cistern full of rainwater, he poured out that Spirit onto his church at Pentecost. That's how it's a promise of Christ. You want the Spirit? We need Jesus who pours it out freely on the church. And again, it's not just the Spirit part, but the whole promise is fulfilled at Pentecost. This was a moment of judgment. A decisive dividing line was drawn. So the people of God who receive this Spirit are safe in Zion. You're totally hidden there. The great and awesome army that will, that will rise again, up against the Lord and against his people is of no threat to you. And the great and awesome army of the Lord that the Lord will raise up to ride out against him is of no threat to you because you're identified with God's people on Zion when you call on the name of the Lord. And how do you know that to be true? How do you know that this is applicable to you, believer? Because there was another day when the cosmic order was overturned, when darkness filled the skies. And that was the day when Jesus took to the cross. There the sky turned dark and blood was spilled. But Acts 2.24 says that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Through him then, as Peter proclaims, in quoting Psalm 16, we know the paths to life, because he suffered the flood-like judgment and has brought us safely to, through to the other side. His spirit, as it were, is now blowing over the face of the earth, recreating his people and we receive this spirit so that we might persevere in Christ in faith. So we might see what Christ has done for us. And so that we might love him. That we might know him. And that we might obey him and worship him all the days of our lives. And never again be stuck in this perpetual cycle of, of disobedience, judgment, and renewal. The whole spectrum of redemptive history has been accomplished for you in Christ. Now I want to bring this to bear on you. It's, it's not, I think within the reform circles, we hear the prophecy of Joel and we get kind of scared thinking that maybe it's about extraordinary gifts and continued revelation. It's not about prophecy and extraordinary gifts. It's, it's about knowing God. It's about knowing his saving work in Christ who Peter proclaims is this decisive word. It shall come to pass in those days that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the point is of the giving of the Spirit that you'll never look back at Egypt or at Sodom as Lot's wife did and question or long for the life that you had or if you grew up a covenant child, long for a pagan life. The Spirit is given to know Him, to see Him, and to persevere in Him. 
You know, the problem that Moses experienced was this looking back. It was this being blind. It was this complaining. It was this failing to offer worship and proper obedience. They wanted what they had, not what they have. And the problem here was not a lack of extraordinary works. It was an inability to see God. It was not a lack of miraculous healings. You can't get any more than what Moses did, by the way. And if there was an extraordinary work that was needed for faith and life and righteousness and perseverance, look no further than the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, of which Peter proclaims we are witnesses to. So, here's the point I'm making. If the Spirit is invisible, quote-unquote, within Reformed circles, that's exactly what He's supposed to be. That's exactly who He's supposed to be. Because His purpose, even as Jesus Himself proclaimed, was to point to Jesus Christ. His whole operation alluded to and prophesied in Joel is to point you and help you to see Jesus Christ. I think there's an irony even that even on the day of Pentecost, even on the day the Spirit comes, who's the main character on display? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. My mother, um, she didn't she didn't grow up a Christian. And I'm always marked by God's grace in her life, calling her from the kind of life that she had as a young woman. But no matter how hard the Christian life is, no matter how hard it is to believe, to get up some mornings and to go to church, to live righteously, to offer my life as a sacrifice to God, no matter how hard it is for her to live a life of faith, I have never once seen my mother question God and say to him, why did you bring me out of bondage? No matter how hard the Christian life is, you don't ever look back. The dividing line has been drawn. You have his spirit and you are safe in Zion because you see Jesus and because he has sheltered you in Zion by pouring out his spirit. And so part of the battle is knowing what we have. You can be encouraged, brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have his spirit poured out like a flood without measure, that we might see the living God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and never turn from him and never question, but to see fully the grace of the Lord, his goodness, his love, and how free it is, and the extent of which he has gone to redeem us, to save us, and to lead us to persevere in faith that we might be safe in Zion. Let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Christ and by the help of his Spirit, and we give you thanks. We give you praise for Jesus, for his blood and his righteousness. And we ask as we go out into this week that you would continue to give us a great measure of your spirit that we might cling to him as our only hope, 
as our only comfort and our only rock. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.